Welcome, everybody, to the Joe Random Sports Podcast. The famous name from MLB The Show Career Mode started a group of fantasy leagues years ago. And today, we gather with longtime Joe Random, Stephen Thayer, and Matt Ramirez to talk all things sports, whether the Joe Randoms. We have our special edition Around the Horn episode with Woody Page, Frank Isola, Max Kellerman, and Bill Plasky. We hope you enjoy. Remember, just keep swishing and don't strike out. All right, welcome everybody to the Joe Random Sports Podcast, the first episode of our second year. Welcome everybody. Uh, this is Tony Reale, aka Burnett Sucks, and uh, we are here with our panelists. So this is going to be a hot one today. A lot of lot of debates, a lot going on in the sports world. We're going to get into Justin Jefferson. We're going to get into the 49ers. We're going to get into the best quarterbacks of the 2020 draft class and much more. So uh, stay tuned. Unfortunately, Max Kellerman has other commitments and uh, will only be here for a short period. But uh, we hope that we get the best of Max Kellerman here. Woody Page looking a little rough. Uh, Didn't even have time to write up a pun on on the back wall. Uh, Welcome, Woody. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) <laughs> and uh of course Woody Page aka Josh Pranger and then uh we've got uh Bill Plasky aka Jason Wilmer Stripling the editor Carlos Correa Kuzbari welcome <laughs> How's it going guys good to be on <laughs> uh, Matt welcome uh you will be reprising the role of Frank Isola and then of course Fish taking on the Max Kellerman role I think this is a very fitting role uh, so let's get right into it, fellas. Uh, big talk of the week. Justin Jefferson, man, is having an incredible season. He is on pace to do a lot of things in his NFL career. And uh, thus far, uh, not only is he leading the league in receiving, uh, he's very close. In fact, 456 yards from surpassing Calvin Johnson's all-time receiving record. We have a big Calvin Johnson fan on this show and uh, I know Woody Page has covered the Detroit Lions for many years. And uh, we also have uh, a big, big, big time uh, Vikings hater on the show. Bill Plasky has covered the Green Bay Packers for many, many years. And then, uh, of course, uh, Fish, uh, or excuse me, Max Kellerman is on the Justin the Jefferson best. hype train. So let's get into this, fellas. Uh, I will start with you, Fish, uh, Max, because you brought up the, the discussion that Justin Jefferson uh, not only has had the best starting three years of anyone's NFL career, but that he might actually be the greatest receiver of all time. What do you got? Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, you're right. He's had the greatest three years of any football player ever. Um, so he's already crushed Randy Moss's record for most receiving yards and most 100-yard games um, in the first three seasons, and he still has four games left to go. Um, so this record could potentially become unbreakable if he has um, um, some good games to end the season. Um, he uh, leads the league um, in uh, receiving yards, Stephen, as you mentioned. Um uh, he also has more receptions than uh, more yards and more receptions than Devontae Adams, despite them having the exact same number of targets. Um, for example, um, he leads the league in contested catches. He has 19 of them. 
Devonte Adams has five to put that in perspective for you over three times more contested catches. Um, and, uh, a, a common, you know, argument against him is his lack of touchdowns. Um, he still scores a, a decent amount, but he's not on that top tier of touchdown scores. Um, I don't think that actually has anything to do with Justin Jefferson. Um, Delvin cook averages like 50 red zone opportunities a game. Um, Aaron Jones for reference is about half that every year. Um, and Josh Jacobs even less. Um, so, I mean, Justin Jefferson has just played his career with a, a, a superstar power, um, goal line back that a lot of other receivers like Stefan Diggs and in Buffalo and, um, um, Devontae and Aaron Jones, uh, and, and Green Bay hasn't had, and that's kind of hurt, um, Jefferson's numbers. Um, but as I've said, um, I don't even think he's peaked yet. I think he's gone. He's improved every single year, despite having the greatest rookie year of all time and then having the greatest second year of all time. Um, he's shown that he's going to continue, continue growing up. And, um, until I see a change in that, I think he's absolutely, um, on track to become the greatest receiver who's ever lived. All right, Woody, break us in here. So first I want to point off that if he were to surpass Kelvin Johnson, he would be doing it with more games. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, the thing here, and I, I kind of broke it down into your three types of, I guess, receivers and what you're most looking at. The first one is best hands. And I don't think many people are going to argue D-Hop is having the best hands. Devontae is consistently known as one of the best route runners, and Debo is probably one of your best playmakers. But when you look at the landscape of the NFL right now, the two guys that I have as your best wide receivers are Justin Jefferson and Stephon Diggs. Now, they're not the best one in any of those categories, but they are probably near the top three in all of those categories. Any of those guys, you get the, their hands in the ball, or the, the ball in their hands, they're making plays. They can make contested catches. They can create separation. So they are, even if you take the stats out of it, considered the most talented. Now, the difference between Stefan and Justin Jefferson, and this works in Jefferson's favor for this argument, is Stefan Diggs has Josh Allen as, as his quarterback. And as much as I love Kirk Cousins, he's not Josh Allen. Um, so I, I think that just shows that much more like how, how good Justin Jefferson is and why I think he is the, the best all-around receiver in the NFL right now. Bill, uh, can you give us – who do you like better, Devontae Adams or Justin Jefferson? Oh, that, that's, that's an easy answer. It's Devontae Adams. He is the most talented receiver in the NFL. He switched teams to go to the Las Vegas Riggers, and he's still putting up – fantastic stats this year he's got the 12 tds hands down it has to be adams i mean you look at how big and physical he is off the line of scrimmage how he can break people's ankles and the way he catches balls i mean the guy has breakaway speed he's virtually uncoverable and he might not have as many yards as let's say justin jefferson or tyree kill but that's because the raiders run the ball more Josh Jacobs has eaten up a lot of his touches, so I would have to disagree with that. Justin Jefferson's not the greatest receiver of all time. I could name you 10 different receivers better than Justin Jefferson all time. Now, Frank, who would you take in this? Would you take Calvin or would you take Jefferson? Um, for In terms of what? Like, 
overall receiver, who would I rather have or who's yeah. had a better three-year stretch? No, we're not going to argue the first three years. That's unprecedented. I think a case closed. But to to this day, you know what Calvin Johnson has done over the course of his career. Who would you rather have, Calvin Johnson or Justin Jefferson? For one game, I would take Calvin Johnson. But I also have a blind uh, numbers test for everyone. All right. Um, I have four players, all current NFL wide receivers. This is their last three years of statistics compiled. Player one, 295 catches, 4,516 yards, 23 touchdowns. Player two, 320 catches, 4,174 yards, 41 touchdowns. 41 touchdowns. Let me repeat that. Tyreek Hill. uh, (laughs) 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 Cut. So number one was Justin Jefferson, and number two was Devontae Adams. Player three, all of this to say that all of these receivers are interchangeable and it all is depending on circumstances. So player three, AKA the man I just mentioned, uh, 298 catches, 3,975 yards, 30 touchdowns. Player four, 324 yards or 324 catches, 4,000 yards, 28 touchdowns. All of that to say you coin flip on any of those guys and it comes down to personal preference. So to say that Justin Jefferson is having is the best receiver of all time when all four of those receivers currently playing or have very similar, if not better numbers is ridiculous. Absolutely. I, I just want to ask, we, agree with that. we started this discussion off as best receiver in the NFL right now, and it's now moved on to all time. So which, which is the argument that we're going with? Um, yeah. It's so, all time isn't up for debate, but yeah, we can, it, He's we only talked about that in fifteen years. years. I mean, you can't. Yeah, really um, well, that's that's why I'm confused as to yeah because we started uh, off with with best current wide receiver. I I don't at this point in time as we sit here on December fourteenth in twenty twenty two. I'm I'm not ready to put him above Jerry Jerry Rice yet, but I think he will far surpass Jerry Rice by the end not of his career. Of CEO, he's that's not fine. ahead of Randy Moss. You guys both. You guys both brought up the touchdowns thing again, which I went out of my way to address. Um, uh, Bill Plaschke I'll, I'll, said, real, Bill real Plaschke quick, I'll go out of that, my way too. Bill, Bill Plaschke said that the um, the Raiders run the ball more. That's not true. They have the same number of targets. Justin Jefferson, Devontae Adams have got targeted the exact same number of times. It's not that they haven't thrown it to Justin Jefferson more than Devontae Adams. It's been literally identical. Um, and he still has more catches and more yards. Vikings have had an easier schedule. They've had a cupcake schedule this year, so... You know, he's been able to to torment bad defenders, too. I, I have a quick question. How, how do you win in a football game? How do you win? As I said, he has less red zone opportunities than um, Devontae I, Adams I didn't has throughout his entire career because of that. his running backs. I asked how many, how do you win a football game? Score more points than the opponent. And once a receiver has almost double the amount of touchdowns, how can you say that that's because of Dalvin Cook? When he's had Aaron Jones, AJ Aaron Jones, AJ Dillon, and Josh Jacobs. Yeah, I'm not the one who made the decision to uh, uh, give more carries to Dalvin Cook. Trust me, but the fact of the matter well, is the that is a decision that Devontae they made. Adams has put up the last three years, 41 touchdowns. So for Jefferson, it's not like he hasn't gotten opportunities. Devontae Adams. Is a better red zone. What it is. He's gotten less red zone opportunities. That's a fact. 
Do you have okay, any statistics to back exactly that up? What, that's, that's the exact thing that happened. That's because he can't score touchdowns. <laughs> I'll come in here and state what we've gathered here. We understand that Jerry Rice is still the GOAT. We understand that Jefferson has had the best first three seasons of any NFL career receiver. And we are debating whether Jefferson or Devontae Adams or Stephon Diggs is better right now. And I think we were split with Devontae and Jefferson. And then we've determined that if you were to pick one or the other, that Calvin would be the choice over Justin Jefferson. Justin Jefferson, by the way, just is now he's now top 10 all time on the Vikings receiving list. Um, he just surpassed Kyle Rudolph, um, who who did it in like, you know, 100, 116 games. And Jefferson's only played 46. Uh, Stefan Diggs is actually number nine, the all time Vikings. And uh, Jefferson probably will catch him this year. He's and of course, Diggs did it in 70 games. So Jefferson's on a, a torrid pace. Um, and and very well could catch Chris Carter by the when it's all said and done. Do we have any other comments to say about why Jefferson is so great? Did we cover all our bases, or are we still torn on Devontae, Devontae or Jefferson? Or on the Viking on the Vikings uh, career receiving yards leaders, uh, Justin Fields is also climbing up that Chicago Bears quarterback ring. It's pretty fast too. So let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. It's worth noting that the are talking about Vikings receivers that the guy whose record Jefferson broke was actually Randy Moss, who spent those years in his career at, with uh, uh, Minnesota as well. All right, yes or no? Jefferson, two thousand receiving yards by this end of the season. He needs five hundred more. Four games left. I'll say yes. Wow. I'll say no. I think you'll just miss it. I'll say yes as well. Big, big shock. Woody? Yeah, they, they've got some favorable matchups coming up. Put me down for a yes as well. Cupcake schedule, right, Jay, uh, Bill? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's what it's been the whole year with the Vikings. They got a minus one point differential, and they're 10-3. and three. That's terrible. Well, <laughs> I, feel like my, I feel like my contested catches stat didn't get enough credit. He has 19. Uh, this is according to Pro Football Focus. He has 19 receptions and contested catches. Devontae Adams has five. Again, what about the PFF grades? Because da- Devontae Adams is exactly so open all the time. He doesn't have to have contested catches because he's always open. That just proves my point. Why does he have less, than, less than receptions that's, that's, that's on equal given. targets? That's a given. He, he gets more less open. receptions on equal targets. Separation than Justin Jefferson. JT, you're debating with... You're debating with opinion, which is debating with facts. The, the fact that I will bring to the table is that they're both 90.2 on PFF. So they're exactly the same, and everything is circumstantial in the NFL. Right now, I do think Jefferson's ceiling is obviously higher, but there's still a ton of football left to be played in his career, hopefully. Are you, I, I, I think, are you going on record as saying it's a toss-up and you have no opinion? I, I started off by saying that, that all four of those guys are a toss-up. They're all elite. Yeah, I'm not denying that either. I'm just saying I, I think Devontae Adams is still the best receiver in the NFL. I'm still taking Jefferson over Adams, just personal preference. Okay, so after round one, I've got Kellerman with 10 points. I've got Plasky with seven. 
I've got Woody with nine and I solo with nine. So, uh, Max, it was it was nice to have you on, and and I guess you you won your your first uh, you, well the first question here. Yeah, I uh, always leave them wanting more. I will take my victory and, and depart. No, I'm kidding, of course. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, enjoy, guys, um, and uh, best of luck. Can't wait to listen. Thanks, Fish. Thanks, Good Max. Stuff. Thank Thanks, you, Max. Max. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Second question here. 49ers taking down the Buccaneers 35 to seven was there in attendance to watch the demolition of the goat uh, was hard to enjoy the win because of all the injuries that the Niners had uh, endured with Debo Samuel going down, Kerry Hatter Jr. Going down, Kevin Givens going down, Dante Johnson, ACL uh, Brock Purdy walked away with an oblique injury. Niners are still looking good. They're nine and four. They're tops of the division. Yet they don't have their starting running back, starting wide receiver, or starting quarterback. Can the Niners still win this thing without those players? And what's ahead of them in the playoffs? Frank, get us going. I'd like to start off by saying that all these injuries and the Niners still being an elite football team in the NFC goes to show how good their roster has been since day one this season. I'd like to point that out. Um, <laughs> but I guess to answer your question, Stephen, I think to kind of go against my MO, I'm being fairly optimistic with Purdy um, as well as the rest of the team. I think he's able to step in and kind of run the exact same system that Jimmy G is able to run, except he's a little bit more mobile. I can picture the Niners going deep in the playoffs is Unlikely as it may seem, I think a big part of it will come down to seeding. If they get a buy and are able to get healthy, uh, Debo getting back to the playoffs seems optimistic at this point. Um, I would love to see some some more George Kittle in my life. The guy gets like three or four targets a game, and he needs to get like eight to ten here with Debo out. And hopefully, he his knees, ankles, foot stay healthy. The biggest thing with with Brock is the as his teammates call him the BCB nickname. Uh, if you can figure out what goes in there, you can you can make a, a pun out of it if you'd like. But uh, the locker room loves him. He's got a chip on his shoulder, zero ego. I think he's perfect for what the Niners need right now. And I think there's a the quarterback controversy going into the next year. What kind of chip is it? Is it a barbecue lay? Is it a Tostito? Is it a Dorito? What do we got? Um, it's got to be a big old ruffle, uh, dippable ruffle in there. Ruffling, yeah. Ruffling the feather. Ruffling his feather. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Uh, No pun intended there. Uh, Bill, the Eagles are the best team in the NFC record wise, but do the Niners have a chance to take down a Philadelphia, a Dallas, a Minnesota? Um, The NFC playoff picture is looking pretty crowded outside of the, the Tampa Bay, New York situation. So, what is your outlook on their postseason chances? I, I think they have great postseason chances like they did last year. I mean, you look at this roster like Matt alluded to before. It, it, I mean, Frank was on the money with that. The roster is very, very deep. You know, um, I, I really like Brock Purdy. He's been pretty good in the last two games. I'll give him credit. I mean, he's a Mr. Irrelevant and he comes in and, you know, fills the shoes of Jimmy G like a seamless transition. It's very impressive. Um I would say the one thing that 
they should be a little bit scared of is is the Eagles and the Cowboys. I think those are the two teams that can beat the Niners mainly because they have great defensive lines. They run the ball well. Um, they both have more experienced quarterbacks. So I, I think if they run into those teams, it will be very interesting to see what the matchup will look like. But they definitely have a chance against those teams. They are one of the favorites in the NFC. Woody, who's your pick to win the NFC right now? I, I think matchups are a big thing because the Niners, if they win their first game, um, I don't know who it's going to be. I'm sure it's probably going to be Washington or New York. Um, I'm going to guess that they're going to win that game. If they get the Eagles, I think they can actually beat the Eagles because the one spot that the Eagles struggle with is kind of in their front seven. And if there's one team who knows how to really exploit that, whether it be in the run game or short pass game, it is the Niners. Now, again, a lot of that's going to be dependent upon health. Um, but I, I think that the Niners have the best defense in the NFC, like far and away. I think the Cowboys give them the most trouble because they're probably the second most complete team. It's just that Eagles offense is so dynamic and that the Eagles secondary is elite. But, you know, those are things that I don't think the Niners have to be worried about. But I, I do think they have to be worried about the high-flying offenses. You look at the Kansas City game, and they got absolutely torched. So Sure, but I think a lot of that was... That. The... When you got a guy like Jalen Hurts who can run the ball and throw the ball so efficiently, I think that's a, that's a big concern. Sure, but I, I think the big difference is in that uh, Niner, or the Niners-Chiefs game, the Chiefs had a lot of the ball, if I remember correctly. So the Niners were never really able to establish and they're one of those teams they put up the long sustained drives they take the wind out of the other team's offenses and you know they kind of control the game and, and do it that way and I don't think they ever got a chance to really do that where I think it might be a little bit easier if they can contain if you make Jalen Hurts just a pocket quarterback and obviously easier said than done um, and make him just sling it he's going to be uncomfortable he likes to kind of get out of the pocket open up some of those matchups and, and I think that's where they can really thrive. But um, they're 12 and one for a reason. Um, and so it, it's hard to go against the Eagles. And, and right now I'm going to say the Eagles are going to be the team that comes out of the NFC. So Frank, the Niners are on a historic level defense. That's how good they are right now. Do you have anything to back it up other than they're just first at every significant uh, defensive stat? However, like we're discussing, they have str traditionally struggled against running quarterbacks. Uh, see Justin Fields, see Patrick Mahomes, who gets out of the pocket quite a bit. Uh, see Lamar Jackson from a few years ago. Uh, there, there are multiple examples of the Niners struggling against running quarterbacks. And Jalen Hurts looks to be like a complete player right now. So uh, what do you got on that? Yeah, I would agree. I was actually going to bring up that point with uh, Fields and Lamar and um, all the times that the Niners defense has struggled, even Mahomes is a scrambler. Like he's going to extend plays, get outside the pocket, make the DBs cover for longer than they're used to. And in the run game, obviously the Niners do a really, really good job of stopping the run. But when you match up 
when you have the quarterback running design power runs like Philly does, you have an extra blocker in there and you're able to pick up another guy on the, the blocking scheme. So honestly, Philly is the team that scares me a whole lot more than Dallas. Um, just because Dak isn't going to run the ball, uh, Zeke doesn't scare me at all. And as long as you can contain the edge with Tony Pollard, I think, uh, I think they'll be fine. Um, like I said, the, the, the QB design runs for Philly are, are the biggest thing that I think can uh, deter the Niners. The toughest thing about this is even if the Niners are able to get out of the NFC, I don't think whether it be Cincy or uh, Kansas city or LA chargers, maybe coming out of the AFC. I don't think, uh, I don't think the Niners have the firepower to keep up with any of those teams. Okay. Um, closing remarks here before we move on to the next topic. I just I think it's interesting that despite the Niners having the best defense, the biggest concern in those playoff matchups are their defense, not offensively what they can do. But you also have to understand with a rookie quarterback in the playoffs, I mean, that's also something to be aware of because they're more prone to make mistakes in in high-pressure situations that they're not used to. Sure, but Jimmy's predicted to come back is it first round of playoffs or after the first round of playoffs? Jimmy ain't coming back unless they get to the Super Bowl, I don't think. It, it's good, probably going to be an NFC championship type thing. I will okay. say this is if we do make it to the NFC championship, that means Brock did a heck of a job. And sure. uh, it will it will raise some questions. Uh, but that being said, I look at this like a Peyton Manning, Brock Osweiler situation, and I, I think Jimmy comes back and uh, takes the helm. Sure. My closing, Absolutely. my closing remark for all of this, or just remember Wally Pip and Drew Bledsoe. That's all I have to say. <laughs> One last thing I have to say is, um, if they do get the Commanders in the first round wild card matchup, that's a dangerous matchup too. Just keep an eye on that. Yeah, I think I think the Commies will definitely beat the Niners. JT, you're right. <laughs> no, I'm just saying they're like kind of a dark horse team. So if they get that matchup, you know they got to be ready. Oh. Playoff football, baby. Let's go. <laughs> After that question, I've got uh, Plasky and Woody at seven. Uh, and, and Frank, I got you at six on that round. All right. So third qu- third one of the first round. We've had a couple of years under our belt now. There were a lot of good names in that 2020 NFL draft class. I want your guys' take on who was the best quarterback of that oh. 2020 draft class. Um, so let's uh, let's kick it off with Bill here. Best of the 2020 class. It's uh, my former man, Justin Herbert. I think Herbert's the best quarterback in the class. I love what Tua offers. I mean, he's proven a lot of doubters wrong this year, but I think the consistency of Justin Herbert, he's starting to come on as of late. Um, they've had a lot of injuries from the Chargers standpoint, so I think he hasn't had as many playmakers. Keenan Allen's coming on. Now that he has a full plethora of weapons to work with, it's really showing the last couple of weeks why he's the best quarterback of, of that draft class. You took uh, Frank's choice there. Um, Woody, who you got? I also have Herbert. Um, he was the offensive rookie of the year. And he followed it up last year, second year. Um, usually when a lot of times you'll see 
quarterbacks take a step back in their second year. He followed it up with a Pro Bowl. Um, and now that's not to say Burrow might have gone instead if um, if he wasn't in the Super Bowl. But um, Herbert has the most touchdowns. Um, he's They're all fairly accurate quarterbacks. Um, he has the most yards both this year and throughout the entire time. And um, when we're looking, he, he has the Chargers curse. You know, a team that consistently sits around 500 but never gets a chance to actually make the playoffs. It's been that way for as long as I've been alive, if not before. Constant injuries on the offensive line. Um, constant injuries with older receivers now. Um, never the best defense. So never the chance that he has to show. And so because his teams aren't winning, he's not getting the love of some of the, these other guys. Um, and this year we can argue that that uh, Jalen Hurts is having the best year of the three. But um, again, that's one out of three years. Herbert's been arguably the best for all three years, um, despite potentially even having the least. All right. Well, Frank, do you stick with the, the three or are you going to go a different route here? I'm actually going to go a different route, uh, Tony. I, I'm going to be objective here. I'm uh, one who's able to separate my opinions from the facts. Um, and it's, it's Joe Burrow, guys. It, it is. As much as I hate to say it, Justin Herbert's my favorite player. Um, but Joe Burrow is far and away the best quarterback in this class. He's led, speaking of cursed teams, Cincinnati Bengals, probably the, the most cursed zero-win playoff team since Boomer left uh before burrow got there they he took the team that was the number one pick herbert came in he had keenan allen he had uh uh mike williams he had pro bowlers on the offensive line and lindsley and they drafted slater the year after he got there and eckler who could forget him steven of course you get into a, a, the roster that burrow took over worst team in the league worst offensive line in the league they draft his buddy jamar chase um and they're able to go on a Super Bowl run a year, two years after getting drafted as the number one pick. They go from the worst team in the league to in the Super Bowl. Um, the stats obviously are in Herbert's favor, but um, I won't go the Emmanuel Acho route, but uh, clearly winning matters in this league. And when you go from the worst team in the league to the best team in the league, and the one thing that's changed is the quarterback, it's got to have a big influence on it so um as much as it hurts me to say I, I really burrow is really 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 impressed me his last year and a half or so he certainly has i'm surprised none of you went the jalen hurts route um in fact uh i i would take jalen hurts out of the three i mean i know he only has you know one dynamic year which is this year he was pretty good last year guys uh i uh, put up similar statistics to uh patrick mahomes in a lot of ways uh but uh joe burrow is is cool joe uh you know herbert to back up your guys's points woody and bill i think he just became like the just set the record for most passing yards and first three seasons most passing touchdowns and first three seasons of quarterback he's he like Justin Jefferson's doing some historic stuff, but um, I know we talked about quarterback wins 
on this podcast and uh, Hertz has won more than both of them. And, and that's where I, I think it comes down to these last two seasons, taking Philly to the playoffs and uh, what the, the tear they're on this year, Burrow comes close, but you know, had that, that tough first season. So um, I, I take Jalen Hurts here. Steven, I, I wanna... uh, to, to rebuttal real quick, Josh, I just have a quick stat here. Uh, the, the Eagles and Jalen Hurts have the number one supporting cast in the NFL with an average PE, PFF grade of 74. The Cincinnati Bengals average PFF grade is, I believe it's 25th and it's in the 30s. Or 50s, excuse me. Jesus, that would be horrible. Yeah, in the 50s for their average PFF grade. So the supporting cast plays a big role. Um, and with Hertz, they have the best O-line in football and an elite receiver, an elite running game. I love Jalen as much as the next guy. I think he's improved as fast as anyone ever. And speaking of a big old ruffle on your shoulder, that guy's got it. So um, with any of those three, I, you can't go wrong uh, for me turning a franchise around pretty much single-handedly is what does it for me for Burrow. I think you could put I, three quarterbacks, 1A, 1B, 1C. I mean, you look at the three, and you, you put Tua right behind them. I, I think you could flip-flop any of them. You can make, <laughs> make a case for Jalen this year because he could be the MVP this year of the NFL. You could make a case for Burrow, his resume. You could make a case for Herbert. I mean, all those guys are very similar, and it's tight. Woody... You know which quarterback of that class we're not talking about? <laughs> Jacob Eason? I don't know. <laughs> ben DiNucci? <laughs> Your boy. Oh, my my boy? <laughs> no, not. Jordan Love, I, guess, I, I, I think he, he could be something special. He can be. He, we, we need a little glimpses of, you know, potential here and there, but he hasn't gotten the opportunity, so – you can't really judge love in a negative way at this point. Well, people are judging Trey Lance in a negative way. Uh, I mean, Jordan Love is in a similar position. Yeah. But he hasn't had the opportunities, though, because he's behind one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. So, you know, that's no fault of his own. A few times do I come and I don't know who he is for for the pod, but Jordan Love was drafted, what, 26? Lance was drafted third. They had they traded a bunch of picks to move up. So there's a reason why he has a much bigger microscope and is be, being seen as more of a. And like JT said, Jordan Love sitting behind Aaron Rodgers, one of the most talented quarterbacks of all time. Trey Lance is not. But I, I do want to uh, point something out here with the the quarterbacks in the 2020 class. Um, I think being clutch matters. And one of the stats that I found that this guy's in a totally different uh, stratosphere, Herbert has 10 fourth quarter comebacks. The next highest is Burrow with five. Herbert also has 12 game-winning drives. The next highest is Burrow with seven. So I, I think how good Herbert is in the fourth quarter and how clutch he is is another thing that speaks to him. Um, the one knock, I guess, against Burrow in terms of his stats is being out most of that, um, his rookie year or half his rookie year. And then I believe he, but he came back from an ACL injury, started off kind of slow in his second year and turned it around and has looked very good. 
And I think those two guys, Burrow and Herbert, if you were to put them in Hertz's situation, they're going to put up phenomenal numbers. If you put Hertz in Herbert or Burrow's situation, I don't think it's the same thing. I think we're we're having totally different discussions there. That's just something I would like to to say on that. Frank, last words here. I, I don't really have anything else other than I'm sticking with my point and I won't be flip-flopping my picks. So uh, that's all I have to say. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. After the first round, we'll conclude the first round. We have Plasky at 20. We've got Woody at 24. And we've got Frank at 22. So pretty close going into the second round. We're going to break this up real quick with a tribute to uh, someone very special that we lost this week, and that was Mike Leach. Uh, Mike Leach passed away at the age of 61. Uh, Quite an impactful human being, coach, family man, and uh, he will sorely be missed among the football community and everybody who's ever followed him. Um, And I just want to point out some, some things of his career. You know, this was a guy who uh, got a law degree um, and you just don't see that very often. He got a master's of science uh, in coaching actually, and believe it or not, started his career at Cal Poly. He was an assistant at Cal Poly. So Eric, if you're listening, Mike Leach, John Madden, Cal Poly, not a bad football school after all, but uh Mike Leach, uh, he, was, he was Mormon. There you go, Braden, uh, coming out of BYU. And uh, that's where he went for his undergrad. So uh, Mike Leach has kind of had this eclectic start to his career. And he was he was a rugby guy. And, you know, just just ended up coaching football in Finland right after his, uh, his Cal Poly stints uh, in his early years. So I look at skill development. I look at learning development. And I see a guy who was very innovative. Obviously he was one of the pioneers of the air raid offense and from his passion of rugby and applying his knowledge of law and coaching and just coaching different players. It's quite an interesting background. And I think it goes to show that the people at the top have a lot of cool, cool interests. And you could see that with Mike, anytime you wanted to ask him a question about football he would deflect it and talk about pirates or something else or weddings or, you know, any, any other topic about how we're stuck in our phones and, and, you know, we're stuck in technology. So I would have loved to play for Mike if I was uh, playing division one football. Um, He was actually a pretty good football coach guys. I mean, you know, being able to win in three of the major conferences uh, he had a lot of impact on NFL players. And so I can't say enough about him. Uh, I know you guys, some very dear to your hearts as well. Um, do you guys have any favorite Mike Leach memories or things you want to say? Uh, so, Frank, go for it. His Halloween candy rant is epic. Anyone who hasn't seen it needs to needs to see it. <laughs> uh, may he rest in peace, man. He's a he's a great guy. I think the the number one thing that I have seen that have taken away from this. Uh, is just you never know when when the, the last time you'll see someone is. So try to try to tell your friends you love them, tell your family you love them, all that good stuff, and um, try to make the most of every moment. And Mike Leach on a football side of things, 
I think he was three wins away from getting to the 600 winning percentage. And that's the qualification to get, uh, I believe, nominated for the College Football Hall of Fame. So hopefully they make an exemption for that and uh, get that guy in there because he truly is a coaching legend and uh, has as wide a coaching tree as anybody else in college football. Yeah, I'd say my biggest takeaway from him, I remember, I think it was in the 2000s when Graham Harrell threw a touchdown pass to Michael Crabtree and they shocked Texas. I think they were like a top five team at the time. And I just remember the like elation of happiness that he had because he was the architect of this air raid offense and it was totally changing college football as we know it. So I look at him more as an innovator of the game. He was great for college football. He had tons of influence on the NFL too and how offenses are ran nowadays. And the guy just had such a unique personality. Like you said, it's awesome to see someone that's so passionate about life other than football. You know, he treated every day like it was a gift and he took advantage of all the days that he had. And I think that's what humans should strive for on a daily basis is to be happy and just be very grateful for everything and to just have a positive spin on, on anything in life like he did. Woody? As the, the group's fullman and uh, one of the larger or more pragmatic people, there's, there's two things that, that stick out in my mind um, with him. Number one is um, I don't remember the game, but it's when he was at Mississippi State, but they had just won the game and post game on the field, the fight breaks out. And looking across, like across, all of a sudden the camera is panned on to Mike Leach. And as his entire team's in a fight with the other team, he's up in the stands taking photos with, with fans. I believe it was like a, a rainy day. Um, my other one, I think it was at Washington State. Yeah, he had the uh, hypothetical who would win in a battle of the mascots. Yes. And just the way he looked at all of it, it just, he, he said stuff that was, I don't want to say out of pocket, but you just don't hear people saying, he's the one, boom, right there. His thoughts are out there. Everyone knows it. Just a funny guy, you know. You can tell what people or, you know, how important someone was to a community, community by how many people reach out and give their words and whatnot. And, you know, fans, coaches, players, whoever, everyone was shocked and, and sad at, at um, you know, the news. And so it, I think it just speaks, speaks to who he was, that he had an impact on that many people. And, you know, may he rest in peace. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of his his best videos, the Pac-12 college mascots. I encourage you guys to watch that one as well. And of course, the candy corn is awful one, Matt and uh, Frank. And then uh, I just, you know, I was watching his tribute video and they asked him, all right, Mike, like, what do you want people to say in your obituary? And he says, what do I care? I'll be dead. <laughs> so not, to, not to make light of the situation. Yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> so... Yeah, Mike Leach uh, lost a great one. All right, let's move into the second round of this show. And uh, we're going to get away from football and get into a little bit more uh, diverse sports topics here. So we're going to open this one up with baseball free agency. It's been quite a winter so far. There's still a lot of big names out there. But last night, the big one, Carlos Correa, 
signing with the Giants, 13 years, 350 million. That was on the heels of the Yankees getting Judge, nine years, 360 million. And uh, of course, Xander Bogart's getting a big contract, Trey Turner getting a big contract, uh, among many others. So, uh, you know, I know there, there's still time to determine winners and losers here. But uh, let's get your guys' opinion on the Carlos Correa signing. Uh, Bill, you are the, the so ecstatic about this move. So why don't you fill us in on your elation of Carlos Correa? Yeah, I think he's the perfect fit in San Francisco. Uh, I'll kind of lay out the reasons. One, I think a lot of people don't know the type of clubhouse leader he is. A lot of people talked about when he was on the Twins last year, how he really brought in the young guys and mentored them, but also, you know, just his presence in the clubhouse itself. It made everybody else better. He has such a, a good vibe about him. He's all about winning. He won a lot with the Astros. He won AL Rookie of the Year. He's a World Series champion. I just think he brings that winning mentality that the Giants desperately need and that leader. They, they haven't had a leader, you know, since the, the Posey years. And last year, it was pretty evident. You saw that. There was no designated leader for the Giants, no face of the franchise. Now that they finally have that piece, they can build around him, not only through free agency, but the guys that they bring up in the farm system. I think gives the Giants still lots of flexibility. They don't have any more contracts, you know, past two years besides Correa. So I think when you have a chip like that, it will attract more free agents. And I think the Giants can mix and platoon with other guys, still have that those same type of mythologies and whatnot. But I think for Correa, it's a, it's a home run. Slam dunk, home run, great pickup for the Giants. And despite them have, having the 13-year commitment, you look at the average annual value, it's only $26 million a year. And when you look at it 13 years from now, it's not going to be that much money. So I think overall, it, it's, it's one of the best pickups in free agency. I think he's the best free agent of this class. All right. So, Woody, let's fight that right off the bat. Um, Judge or Correa or somebody else, best free agent of this class? I mean, if we're talking just simple player, um, I think it's Judge. You know, what he does with a bat. He he took a, a fairly, I don't know, slightly above average Yankees team, and he, he dragged them very well to the playoffs, top of their division, um, you know, all of that. So he's he's probably the best. Now, I have an issue with giving a mostly power guy $40 million until he's 38, um, you know, and that's coming from a, a, a Tigers and, you know, Miggy fan. You know, I, I, I see what happens to power players. Um, now, it's one thing playing in Comerica versus the Bronx Sandbox, but I think in terms of value, actually like Padres did with Xander Bogarts. Um, I believe they were was eleven year for two hundred and sixty mil. Two eighty, yeah. Two eighty. I think that's one of the the better valued as of right now. Um, now it's it's interesting though because they have Tatis. They had a Gold Glove nominee in Kim all playing that position. So what do you do there? Do they trade Tatis, you know, to help free up for when Soto needs a contract up? 
Um, so while looking at just the contract numbers, I like bogeys. I don't know that that was the best signing for the Padres. Um, but I do like what, what JT said about having that leader in the clubhouse. And it's crazy how one guy can come in and kind of turn things around. Now we don't know if Correa is going to be that guy, but I think that's huge. And the last time that the Giants had a real big free agent signing was, you know, over 20 years ago. And so one of the things that I think could really catapult this Giants team in the future is A, stars can go there and thrive if he does. And B, they can bring in other big name players that can help elevate the Giants. And if that's something that that does, even if he's not necessarily playing up to his contract numbers later on, you know, it looks good. So just a few points for Frank to expound upon here. First off, is Correa just a power guy? Um, how does his game age in comparison to a judge or somebody else? And uh, also want you to talk about, there are some people that think Correa was actually the best shortstop on the market. So what do you have to say to those comments? I think Correa is the second best shortstop on the market. I think Trey Turner is better. Um, just clearly over the last four years, the stats don't even well, what about the, to each other. The arm strength for Turner kind of decreasing, whereas Correa has that arm. I would agree, but arm strength is is one of the, the categories. I think, like I said, in the football argument, scoring runs is the, the most important part of baseball to me. Uh, and saving runs obviously adds up, but you look at the overall war and it, it tips in Trey's favor. I think, like you're alluding to, Mr. Tony, I think the, uh, the uh, aging of Correa's game will play well for the Giants compared to maybe a Trey Turner. Um, because obviously Correa is more of a gap-to-gap hitter and doesn't necessarily rely on his speed, but he has power. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, it'll be interesting in um, honoring honoring Fish and JT in that sentiment. But, well, to rebuttal um, your, your point about Trey Turner, Carlos I'm not Brown even done talking. Has- hold on. Hold on. I'm not even – I'm not done talking. <laughs> Come on. You guys talked for five minutes. <laughs> um, I think – Overall, it makes the Giants better for the next six, seven years. The back end makes me nervous, but I, that's the way all these contracts are going now. So I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to be as optimistic as I can about it. 13 years is such a long time, and I think it's going to turn into a Bobby Bonilla situation where they're going to have deferred payments those last three or four years, and it's going to be a financial mess in 2035 or whatever it may be. Um, but Stephen, to, to answer your question, no, he's he's not a pure power hitter. He's not a pure average hitter, like more of the Turner style. I think he's a good hybrid for both. Uh, probably the second best defender in the shortstop class and a really, really, really nice cornerstone piece for the Giants to build around. But that back end makes me really, really nervous. So coming from J.A. Adande, one of our other panelists, a.k.a. Mark Nathlich, Hate the move for the Giants. Correa is completely overrated and hamstrings the Giants for years to come. Dude is only a two-time All-Star. Never finished near the top at MVP voting. Way too much capital for an above-average, not fantastic shortstop. Bill, you think he's winning the MVP here, 
Um, there are people that are anointing this guy as a superstar like yourself, but at the same time, uh, don't we need to be realistic with our expectations here? Yeah. I mean, you do need to, Giants fans do need to temper their expectations a little bit. I mean, the guy's not going to hit 40 homers, 120 RBIs. We're not talking judge stats, but from an overall standpoint, I think you look at his defense. He's one of the best defenders in all of baseball at shortstop position. And you pair that with Crawford going to third, they're going to have a great infield. Um, so I think in the next six, seven years, he's going to be the de facto guy that's going to carry the Giants through a lot of situations. You look at in the playoffs, look at all the big hits that he's had in the playoffs with the Astros, helping them win a World Series. So, uh, you know, you look at the overall body of work. Yes, he has been injury prone, but I think his potential in these next four or five years is greater than any shortstop in the game. What about the next nine years after that? Well, it's hard to project out, you know, what, what he's going to be in, you know, 2030, 2031. I mean, he'll still be a good player, but he's not going to be his prime years of excellence and greatness. So I I think with Correa, he has a, a, maybe a, a, larger window than say like a Trey Turner or Xander Bogarts um Bogarts is 30 years old I think the Bogarts uh deal is worse than than people will expect I I don't really I like Bogarts as a player but I think for 11 years until he's 41 you know it's kind of similar with the Giants but I think Correa will end up being um more impactful in the next you know whatever seven eight years Steven, I don't I don't know if me and Josh even need to get on. JT can just debate himself. He's saying that Correa is going to win an MVP, and then he's saying he won't hit 40 home runs or 100 RBIs. And then he's saying that the Bogarts deal is good, but the back end of 40. No, I'm saying that he could, hit, he could easily hit like 330, 30 homers, 100 RBIs. He could easily he's have never hit that in his career. Like he's never hit that in his career. <laughs> I don't think he has a single... He has six. Season. He has six years of twenty plus homers in eight seasons, so he's definitely capable of hitting homers. That's not a concern. What I'm saying is, is that he hasn't entered his prime yet. Therefore, said, that's why his stats said, don't look as glamorous as they, you know, as you, you think. Just they said could. he could hit three thirty and thirty home runs. Yeah, three thirty zero times in his career, and he's hit thirty home runs in his career now. Could the average go up? Sure. But the home runs are probably going to go drop going from Minute Maid Park over into, into uh, Oracle Park. Park. Yeah, the number he goes from the number three favorable hitters park to the number 29 favored pitchers or hitters park. So it's tough to project that. I think uh, I think if we're actually being realistic about it, it, it gives the, the Giants a chance to build a better roster. But Estrada... J.D. Davis, Correa, and Brandon Crawford aren't winning any playoff series. I can tell you that. So, uh, did you guys see Chris Russo's comments on this? Yeah, he thought it was the worst signing in Giants history. I saw that. He called it a desperation move on Farhan's part, essentially. Um, You know, called out Stripling, Manaya, Mitch Hanniger, um, and now Carlos Correa. Um, I think Giants fans were looking at this completely different with just the first three signings, but now adding Correa makes it look like Farhan won. Maybe it was desperation, but you know, you look at the average annual value here of the 27 million a year that actually might play well 
at the end of his contract, even if you have to eat it, um, the, the contracts that are going to be doled out at that time, we have no idea what the inflation is going to look like. So I think the direction Farhan was trying to go is, hey, the Giants can get somebody. So, uh, and I think if anything else, you know, yeah, it's a lot of money and may not be worth it. And, you know, he's not an Aaron, he's not selling tickets like Chris Russo said by himself. People aren't going to come to watch Carlos Correa necessarily. Um, but uh, that was, that's the, I think the point is, can you bring in other free agents now? One more point I'd like to bring up is, the Giants have made some big capital into pitchers in the past. You look at Barry Zito, 2016. You look at Samarja and Cueto. Those are all bad contracts. I mean, Zito, yes, he did get a world, one World Series win um, in 2012. Helped, you know, in that run. But pitchers have traditionally not done well in longer contracts. So I think the Giants were smart in giving a hitter that type of contract. And let's see what he can do. You know, I, I think... A lot of people need to give him more of a chance just because he's one of the most hated players in the league. You know, I, I think from a talent standpoint, he's one of the most talented players in all of baseball. Giants definitely definitely made a, a big bang in this uh, free agent market. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I just want to refute one. Well, not necessarily refute, but I guess point this out. Um, Astros had a gold glove winner at shortstop last year it wasn't carlos correa so for this whole he's one of the best defensive shortstops and he's not well, even he the best the defensive shortstop on his team in 2021 that's the best overall defensive player out of everyone yeah sure, actually, actually last last year he was uh 18th among shortstops in defensive war but the year before obviously he was number one so are we yeah. seeing a decline or are we seeing a blip that's the big thing I think it's, yeah. I think it's more of a blip. I think he could still be a very good defender. We yeah, we knew that. Come on. <laughs> a uh, six four two twenty five at that position could become problematic later. However, at least he can convert to first base. You know, if necessary, or they could move him to third, like an A Rod. They could sure. do that. Yeah. All right. Well, good good points, fellas, on that. Um, it remains to be seen, Bill. It remains to be seen. Uh, be very interesting to see, right? <laughs> uh, we could talk about that for days, but we got to move on. Uh, college football playoff. We've got two of the biggest uh, fans on the show right here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, of course, we're talking about how uh, Michigan is going to play TCU. And we are going to talk about how Georgia is going to play Ohio State in the college football playoff. Before we get into this, Bill, you were pretty adamant on the show, the last show, that Ohio State was getting in. And uh, Mr. Woody and our other guy, Max Kellerman, were pretty adamant that uh, that was not going to happen, that uh, USC had pretty much locked it up. If not USC, it was Alabama. And uh, Max even wanted Clemson, uh, which we won't go into that. But uh, unfortunately, Bill, you get the last laugh here for at least the moment. I do. Yeah, it was it was very fulfilling to to know that Ohio State did make it into the top four, and I think they're they're here to prove the doubters wrong. They're going to have a huge chip on their shoulders. Georgia probably this is the worst matchup for them in terms of having a semifinal game. You do not want to face a team like Ohio State. 
with talent level that they have and, you know, the amount of playmakers they have on offense, I think for them, they would have rather much play rather play to TCU because we all know at the end of the day, Ohio State is a more talented, more physical, better team than TCU. So I, I think for Ohio State, they have nothing to lose, literally nothing to lose. It's just like 2014, come in, beat Alabama. They shocked the world. No one even gave Ohio State a chance in that game. And look at all the NFL players that came out of Alabama from that team, you know. Uh, So I I think Ohio State doesn't get enough credit for the domination that they had in the Big Ten, minus them getting their butts kicked against Michigan. But I think they kind of gave up at the end. It was a one-score game with seven minutes left in the game, and they kind of just gave up. You know, so I, I think this this is going to really motivate them for the playoff and they have a nothing to lose attitude. So I think they'll play looser than Georgia. Georgia has all the pressure on them since they're the defending national champions. So that, you know, gives Ohio State an advantage psychologically. Giving up against your division rival. Um, this is big for the Big Ten uh, being getting two teams into the playoff. Um, now, Woody, I know you've got a lot to say about this. I'm curious how many touchdowns you think Georgia is going to beat Ohio State by. First of all, you can't call yourself an Ohio State fan and then refer to them as Michigan and not the team up north. That's like three strikes you're out on that alone. That's terrible. I also want to defend myself and say I only said USC was getting in if they beat Utah. And I thought Ohio State would get in, but I said you would be silly if you didn't think that the – committee wouldn't try to put Alabama in. I didn't think they were getting in. I just thought the Alabama or the committee would try to add well, the whole Nick Saban thing was a complete joke. Him getting on shows trying to convince the, the committee that he was actually, you know, they were a legit was, team in the playoffs. Like come on. Was he supposed to say no, we don't belong here? No, but he was trying to lobby like a politician, like, oh Alabama, we're, we're Alabama put us in just because of their name. I mean come on. Two losses and they have no wins against anybody. Him and he answered. Anywho, so back to what uh, Tony was asking. <laughs> if you're giving up one score game against your biggest rivals for a shot at a conference championship, what are you going to do when you're down three scores against the best team in the land? Are you going to give up? Now, I, I agree with JT in the sense that probably are the worst matchup for Georgia in the sense that if there's one team that can put up points very quickly, it is Ohio State. But that team just doesn't have that dog in them. He said that they're more talented than TCU. I agree. Are they more physical? Absolutely not. This is the softest, very good team I've ever seen. Look like, at how they beat up this, on Notre Dame in week one. Look at how they, they pounded the ball right down their throats on that last drive. It was like a seven, eight-minute drive. They've been physical all year. I, I think you just haven't seen enough of Ohio State to really know. They're a physical team. They got punched in the mouth by Michigan and, and, and gave up. They have some good offensive linemen. Um, you know, there are no slouches in the defensive line portion, but this isn't a Georgia. This isn't a Michigan. Like, this – isn't even a TCU where they're a very physical team. They don't like they, – they're a finesse team. They like to beat you on the outsides. They like to beat you with speed. They like to beat you with skill because they're not a team that feels they have to do the dirty work. And you see that the teams that do the dirty work are the teams that are going to win. 
all three of those teams are better than Ohio State in uh, the trenches. Now that doesn't matter because I think Georgia does beat them by, I'll say, 17. Ohio State has two All-American tackles, though. So how, how could you say that their offensive line is that much better? Ohio State's offensive line is right up there with, with the best of them. Their, their tackles are good, but their interiors, they got, got destroyed by Michigan and even Penn State in the trenches. Like just, We also didn't have our running not. backs either in the Michigan game. We had to rely on someone that was like fourth or fifth string in, in the wings because we didn't – our running backs – And Michigan didn't have their, their power back that was up for a Heisman contention. Like – I'm not calling Ohio State bad. I'm just saying the one thing they lack is physicality. And the one thing that Georgia brings is physicality. Like Jalen Carter is going to feast. That, uh, um, John Blank on his name, the other defensive end, they're going to get in the backfield. They may not necessarily get to Stroud because Stroud is very good in the pocket, but they're going to make it a very hard time. They're not going to be able, be able to establish the run. Like George is probably going to put up points. It's probably going to be a 35 to 14 type game. Maybe 3521. All right, Frank, I know you don't cover college football a whole lot in your journalist career, but uh, can you give us a prediction uh, national championship here and who do you think wins? I don't even know that it's a conversation. Like based off of the my brief stint in uh, college football this year, I think Torch is far and away the best team. I think they don't even sniff losing a game in this playoff. And it's going to be a little bit like when the big bad bully shows up at school and just starts beating the crap out of the little, little nerds, stuffs them in lockers, beats the living heck out of them and takes their lunch money and steals their girlfriend. That's what's going to happen. I think in my opinion. All right. That's all though. I'll, uh, <laughs> I, I got to move. I got to move forward. I, sorry. I didn't give the score update. After last one, but uh, in this second round, we've got Plasky at twelve, Woody at eleven, and Frank at thirteen. So it's a uh, it's really narrowing down here. We're gonna move forward with Kawhi Leonard and uh, how much of a disaster he has been this year. I know Frank has covered him very closely for his career and specifically this season. So I'll start with Frank and what's your thoughts on? his load management days and what's going on with his knee and what's going on with his attitude character, or if anything is going on there. So Frank, uh, what is your assessment? I can't speak to Kawhi's attitude or character simply because in my time covering him, he's never said a word to me. Um, so it's hard for me to, to speculate on whether or not he's a team guy or really loves basketball or what it might be. I want to go into a little bit of a different side of this whole load management thing and what he's brought to the NBA, but what he's brought and what he's done to the NBA has made all these fans like buy Clippers tickets or buy Warriors tickets on a second game of a back-to-back and the whole starting five is resting. What he's done, and this might be an NBA scheduling issue, it might not be solely on Kawhi Leonard, it might be something that the league office needs to change, but what that does is these guys as players have the, in my opinion, obligation to provide entertainment for these people that are paying hundreds of dollars to go see their favorite player. And when that player chooses to sit out to 
to load manage, I, I think it just absolutely kills the product that is the NBA. And I think for Kawhi to kind of be the initiator in this load management movement or not playing back-to-backs, think about a kid who goes to a game, his parents spent a lot of their monthly budget to go to go get him to see uh, Clippers Kings on in Sacramento. And this is the only game they can get to. This is the only game that uh, the Clippers are in town, whatever it might be. Kawhi Leonard is this kid's favorite player. He, he comes to the game excited to see Kawhi 25 minutes before game time. Hey guys, not playing. That kid's crushed. And whether it be a kid, whether it be someone who's, paying good money to come see to come see him um and not just Kawhi any superstar I think it's a tragedy and it needs to be fixed and whether that's a league office whether that's uh player health whether that's standing conditioning I don't know but it's a problem that needs to be fixed because it's rampant not just for my fantasy team but for for all the little kids you hear all these stories about Kobe playing through all these injuries um because he wanted to be out there every day for fans and to be the the consummate professional and it's just it's sad to see this happening so often you've you've raised a lot of thoughts for me just there um but i'm gonna throw it over to bill uh i will say Kawhi's only played nine games this year and he's averaging 13 five and a half 3.8 that's well 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 below his career averages and um I just don't know how this guy made the top 75 of all time um, in the limited amount of games he's played, not to question his dominance in the time that he was on the floor. But uh, I think you raise an interesting question, Frank, is does the NBA really care about feelings? Do they really care when all this money's on the line, when they've got so much money committed to a player, the teams need this guy on the floor uh, or are people just soft? They're not playing through pain anymore. What What's really, really going on here? So, Bill, what's your take on this? Yeah, I, I think with a guy like Kawhi Leonard, he's made of glass. You know, he he's a guy that continually throughout his career has had knee issues, ankle, whatever the case may be. And I think with some teams, they're just more ca- cautious than others and it could be a case that some teams like the Clippers are trying to take him slow when he's going through, you know, his second ACL injury. And it's a shame because like he was saying, many people around the world come to see these teams too. You know, it's not just people in the United States, people travel globally to come see their favorite players play on their favorite teams. And let's say a, Someone came out from China to go see Kawhi Leonard in in uh, Crypto.com Arena, and they find out the day of the game that their favorite player is not playing. Um, so I think it's it's more of teams need to have a better balance of having these players available, and there needs to be better methods uh, training wise to get them back on the court faster, um, even if it's a, a little nagging injury. Uh, It seems like nowadays you look at fantasy basketball, for instance, any little nagging injury and that player is immediately not even in the lineup due to precautionary reasons because these guys are high investments. So I think it's more of an NBA issue, but it also can be individual teams as well. What do you where's the line for you and 
playing through pain, playing through the fans versus you got to look out for yourself and for your team? Well, let me answer your question with a question. Outside of Leonard, how many guys in the NBA can anyone name that are constant repeat offenders of of load management and taking a lot of days off and this and that? Joel Embiid, Anthony Davis, James Harden, uh, the Warriors on back to backs. I'm I'm not I'm talking not about guys that are injured all the time, like or Davis. I'm talking spe- guys I'm speaking that just, to, load, to load management. Yeah, yeah. I mean the Warriors. The Warriors are sitting out their entire starting. Yeah. The, the, okay. So the Warriors. The, the, yeah, the Warriors have been known to do that with all of them. Um, LeBron gets precautionary days every back to back. AD hardly plays back to backs. Harden hardly plays back to backs. Embiid doesn't play back to backs. So, I, I don't know. This, these are th- these are all. LeBron's thirty-seven years old in his twentieth season. Joel's first four years of his career, or whatever, were littered with injuries. Anthony Davis is made of tissue paper. Like, it sucks, but at the end of the day. I think the most important thing is that these guys can have a good quality of, of life. Like, I'm sorry. I don't care that little Timmy went to go see James Harden and well, I'm not going to use James Harden because I think differently of him. I don't care that little Timmy came to see Joel Embiid and he's sitting out because he has some inflammation in his knee. Little Timmy will get over it. What I do care about is that Joel Embiid at age 50 can get up and downstairs and he can take care of his children, his grandchildren, and all of that. The question is, and we kind of talked about this with the football injuries and the injury timeouts and who's faking and who isn't, but we don't really know where there's pain versus where there's injury. And with my background, I'm always a precautionary guy, and I would rather a guy sit out an extra day if it means not potentially tearing an Achilles or not potentially tearing a meniscus or, you know, I'm not a big fan of overexerting guys in breaking them down um, too quickly. And especially in a time now where sports science is at its highest, you know, you're seeing guys run faster, jump higher, hit harder, whatever. And so it's just like cars. You take a race car, you need the best fuel for it. um, And it's performance is higher than any other vehicle. But you also see more breakdowns. You also, you know, need to not use it as much. And so, while maybe you don't get 82 games out of a guy like you would in, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you are getting 60 games of much higher quality. And so personally, as a fan, I would rather my favorite players sit out 15, 20 games a year. Um, if it means that he a gets to play more seasons because he took care of his body more and B has better performance in the game that he was playing in. I'm, uh... when, when I, when I get to my car, I sure as hell want it to start when I, the key in the ignition yeah but are you driving a porsche are you driving a kia sorrento it's a gmc canyon Uh, it's not a high-end you know (laughs) hypercar sports car that's what these people are compared to your everyday people you and i were toyota camrys exactly they have the privilege to make hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars show up and do your damn job 
when you can play. If you're healthy, play. Precautionary rest games is what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's it's so overused in the NBA nowadays because you know they can they can play through those precautionary measures and then go and have a, a massive injury, go and tear an ACL, go and you know baseball players supposed to be an innings restriction goes out, pitches more, tears you know has to get Tommy John because he's tore his UCL. Like, would you rather guys try to push through it to be tough, or would you rather them you know? but they get saved in the long run. All right. I'm so, not saying it's if they're injured. I'm saying precautionary rest days. That's what that's I'm talking about too, though. <laughs> the precautionary days. So how can you precaution you something if you're not injured? Because you're, you know if you feel like you're, you could be injured or like I'm not injured here, but this feels like something bad could happen. I need a little so bit more So then why do the Warriors sit their whole starting lineup? Because... They're older All those guys, guys have injuries? <laughs> no, back-to-back. Back, you're precautionary against a potential injury happening in those back-to-backs. But there, there's right. no injury that's going to happen if they're healthy. So that's that's just by chance if they happen to get injured. What do you mean there's no injury that's going to happen if they're healthy? Tyler Murray was healthy and then he tore his ACL. That, that they're dealing with that would... You don't need a pre-existing injury to have an injury, though. Okay, so we, we got to quickly kind of finish up here. I will close this topic with, if I'm the NBA, I just would rather find and scout players who are Toyota Corollas, workhorses. And, you know, if you get those, you're going to be fine. You're going to lose uh, less games, at least in their prime of their career. You know, I, I want the workhorse player. And uh, maybe the scouting can can look at a way, how can we find a lot of really good players versus elite guys who are going to be huge injury risks, because I'd almost argue those elite guys that are giant injury risks um, actually hamstring the team more, no pun intended. So uh, I'll finish with this. Why did Timmy fall off the swing set? Because he was pissed about Kawhi Leonard not playing. Because he had no arms. Knock, knock. (laughs) (laughs) Who's there? Not Not Timmy. Timmy. (laughs) <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> just something to think about all right uh going into this last topic here we're we're coming up on time so let's make it quick uh plasky at 36 page at 41 isola at 40 uh world cup final argentina versus france that's where we're at i just want to get your guys's comments on the tournament as a whole and no uh, yeah, Woody, you're the resident uh, soccer follower. This World Cup has kind of been hindered because of all of the background stuff, you know, with the way that Qatar got it, with the fact that the World Cup is happening mid-season as opposed to in the off-season. Um, you know, all the migrant workers dying, trying to build and make this happen. But in in my memory, I think this has been with the terms, the, the play on the field has been one of the better ones in, in recent years because players are coming in mid-season when they're in their peak form. You're seeing a lot of upsets. Um, you're seeing a lot of really good goals. Very few nil-nil, one-zero games. A lot of games have been high, you know, up-tempo, goal scoring. Um, and, I mean, 
France going back to back for the first time in 60 years or Messi winning his first great storyline for the final. A lot of people are going to be tuned in. I've said it from the beginning. I think that the fix is in that it was supposed to be Argentina and Portugal, Messi versus Ronaldo, but Portugal didn't get the memo. I think that <laughs> FIFA does whatever it can to help Messi get his first and cement himself as the GOAT. Um, but I think France is the better team. I think, I think it'll be high scoring, though. I think both teams score. I think we're looking at like a 3-1, you know, 3-2 type match um, in full time. Uh, Plasky? Yeah, I mean, I think the best World Cup surprise was Morocco, first African country to get all the way to the semifinals. I mean, seeing just the pure elation on the whole country itself, how they kind of got behind the team. And, you know, this was like a Cinderella in the NCAA tournament. You know, they were on fire. They had a lot of guys in good positions upsetting, you know, these well-known teams who would have thought that they would get out of that bracket with Belgium in it um, and they somehow knocked them off too so they knocked off Spain Portugal they had a tough road to get there but I think this is great for the world of soccer because it just kind of shows that there's more parity than most people expected nowadays um, you know Germany didn't even make it out of the group stage so there, there's a lot more um, teams out there that can go and make a run at this World Cup and I think Morocco was a perfect example of that, and it was fun watching them all the way through. They just were outmatched with, by France. France is by far the best team, I think. Love the shout-out to Morocco, and I do agree. I think France dominates a 4-2 final. Um, Frank, what do you got? I want to start off by saying about – just talking about how cool the World Cup is. I think having an opportunity only once every four years to represent your country is – along with the Olympics, probably one of the most special things to do in sports. Um, out of respect for that, I won't be talking about how soccer players fake injuries and it makes the game unwatchable. Out of respect for how cool the World Cup is, I will not talk about the flopping and the absolute disgrace that guys roll around with injuries, faking injuries on the field or on the pitch. I, I, I can't say it because of how much respect I have for the World Cup, but how little these guys... <laughs> Actually, I can't go any farther than that. That's, that's too much. So uh, the World Cup event itself is very cool. Um, sad to see it being in Qatar with all the FIFA controversy, but um, I'm, I'm excited to, to follow who might win. And... Uh, yeah, that's that's what I got. I, I I couldn't disrespect the FIFA World Cup like that. <laughs> oh but man, I, I hate the soccer players do that. You know, they fake these injuries, try and you know delay the time, and it come out, spray their shins down. Oh my! Gosh. Yeah, you know, I, it's, I can't talk about it, of course, because of how cool the FIFA World Cup is. But <laughs> too over the top. I mean, like it, a. Cam Jordan getting fined five hundred thousand dollars for faking an injury on the the end of the game. At least they called him out on it. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, good, good, good discussion tonight, fellas. Um, at the end of this, I've got Woody at forty six, Frank at forty four, and and Bill at forty three with a strong finish there. Um, I will have a quick, quick final face off, Woody, um, and uh, just you know. I want you to speak on Woody. What do you think of 
uh, Alex Ovechkin, the 37 year old, uh, getting his 800th goal in hat trick fashion and uh, joining the elitist of the elite company in pretty much all the sports, you know, upper echelon guys, Gordie Howe and the great one, Wayne Gretzky. Um, where does Ovechkin Ovi sit in your line of goats? Um, in, in the hockey goats, he's probably just outside the top five, I think. Um, here's a fun fact that people don't know, but Alex Ovechkin actually has more goals per game than Wayne Gretzky by one one hundredth of a goal per game. But nonetheless, um, he's one of the greatest goal scorers has ever seen um probably top three along with with wayne and uh super mario lemieux if he was healthy he would be the greatest goal scorer nhl has ever seen but he couldn't play a a uh, a full season to save his life but um Ovi's a guy that penultimate elite athlete because of the way he's transformed his game from when he first came to the league being a guy off of speed and, and skill and, um, you know, beating guys on odd man rushes and breakaways and all that to now being this kind of slot guy who's just pinpoint accuracy, you know, set me up with one timer, um, you know, and I'll put it in the top corner and I'll bang bodies in front of the net and pick up that rebound. The guy loves scoring goals. He loves the game of hockey. He's taking care of his body more. And this is huge for the sport to have, a guy joined Gordy Howe and Wayne Gretzky. And I hope that people, as we get closer, follow his journey into, you know, maybe passing Wayne for 895 in his career. And uh, I think that could be good for the game of hockey. And it's, it's awesome to see. All right, fellas, any last comments on that or the entire show before I let Woody go on his uh, victory rampage? No, congrats, Woody. Uh, build. Slash JT, it was fun debating against both sides of your debates. Woody, fun as always. And uh, Tony, nicely done, partner. Way to wrangle us in. <laughs> Thank you. Bill? One last thing I'll say is is uh, Carl's career is a giant. He is a giant. He's the first superstar they've had since Larry Bond, so it'll be very interesting to see. <laughs> All right, Woody, uh, congrats on another win for you in our Joe Randoms around the horn. What do you got to say to the uh, the haters out there? 2-0, oh, um, haters of which there are none. No, um, I want to first say that uh, I didn't know you kept up with the World Cup like that. Um, we had a lot of good points, so that was, that was awesome to hear. Um, I thought it was just mostly Fish and I kind of – Diving in with that. Um, I would actually like to finish mine off because this is a very heated debate with JT and I. Let's make a bet on that Georgia-Ohio State game. <laughs> you, you, you whipped out on me for the Michigan game. Um, let's, let's make a bet here with, with the Georgia-Ohio State. Give me the parameters. The parameters of the bet? Let's do a t-shirt what's, bet. What's, what's it going to okay. take? I'll give you even uh, – what about Ohio State just covering the spread? Is that, is that a, a bet? Do we have a spread number? 
Well, I'll six and six and a half. We'll do this. Barring any huge guys sitting out or anything like that, Ohio State within ten. Or if they score forty points, I will buy a Michigan shirt and I'll take a photo with it and hit it yeah. with the go blue. And if Ohio State doesn't come within ten or doesn't score forty, gotta do the same thing. What? No, I I think you should wear an Ohio State shirt. That's where I think. Okay, that's. I mean, that's easier for me. Well, how how is that easier for you? Because then Ohio State, you know, they because I hate Michigan more than I hate Ohio State. <laughs> so I I don't really I don't have an issue with Ohio State. I've got no problem wearing that. I just figured it it hit me more if I were to wear a Michigan State or a Michigan shirt. But sure, we'll do. You know, we'll, or we'll do our each other's school. So if if it works out that way, you know, I win the bet. You've got to wear a Michigan State shirt, uh, and you win the bet. I'll wear an Ohio State shirt. Take a photo and tweet out "Go Bucks" or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, All I, right, I will take that bet. So we'll, so it's within ten points. What what were the- Ohio State has to score forty? Or Ohio State has to score 40. So they can okay. lose by yeah. 20, but if they score 40, then you win the bet. So it's either either one, within 10 or 40. Yep. yep. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take that bet. I mean, the spread wow. is six and a half, so I'll take that. We'll make it easy on you, uh, Bill. I I'll make, I can get you a Michigan State shirt, so we, we can make it easy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds have- like a good plan to me. I don't have to buy one, uh, so yeah, there you go. Yeah, so but if the Ohio State wins the bet, then I will happily buy an Ohio State shirt for Josh. I do. I do have one last point. Uh, watch out for those fighting Dan Campbells because the Lions are coming for the playoffs. We're not going to get in there, but we're we're Rawr. coming for it. We're going to knock They're going to lose to the Jets. They're going to lose to the Packers. They're going to lose to the next team. <laughs> all right thank thank you fellas it's been a lot of fun uh we'll, we'll see you all next time <laughs>